HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, folks, it's Monday. It's 12 o'clock. We're right on time today for a change. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and I am proud as punch to be sponsored by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. I'm going to tell you that that was just a twinkle in Michael Batterberry's eye about 10 years ago, and then uh, Patrick Martins and I had Dave Arnold on the show right when this network first opened its doors. We talked about the Museum of Food and Drink, and by golly, Dave Arnold made it happen happen with some help from his friends, including Patrick. But that's another story for another day. Um, Right now, it's time for Joys and Sorrows. Uh, We're going to be talking about land grabbing today with the Oakland Institute. Anurata Mittal is joining me later. Um, But first, I wanted to talk about a few things that caught my eye in the news today. And I'm going to speed through these even faster than I usually speed. Um, First of all, NAFTA, if you recall, Trump has now flip-flopped on NAFTA. He was all about killing it. Now he's all about saving it. Guess why? He was swayed by some Sonny Perdue, our new Secretary of Agriculture, who showed him a county map uh, of the, or rather maps of the states affected, that would be affected by killing NAFTA and the impact that would have on Trump voters. Like this did not compute with Herr Trump. He did not realize that the people who voted for him are also the people who do the farming in this country. Okay. So Philip Rucker from the Washington Post reported this. And then apparently Trump called Canada and he called Mexico and he got them to explain what would happen when he kills NAFTA. I'm not kidding you. You cannot make this stuff up. Purdue actually had to explain to him that this would hurt the people economically that voted for him. And so he changed his mind. Now, it's nice to know that he can be flexible, but the idea that he had no clue who would be involved in, you know, who who has uh, a stake in the NAFTA treaty is just kind of mind blowing yet again. I mean, you know, once again, the, the you know, the head explodes uh, at the lack of information and education that this president so 
routinely exposes himself uh, as being um, completely unfit for office. Um, Second thing on my agenda today, Rick Friday, a cartoonist for the Farm News for the last 21 years, was fired on Friday because he penned a cartoon in which Monsanto's name was taken in vain. So they pulled their advertising money from the paper and the paper fired Mr. Friday. That just ain't right. I remember like about six or seven years ago, uh, Phil Brasher, who's the agricultural reporter for the Des Moines Register, was fired also for angering his corporate overlords. But his popularity commanded such an incredible community response that he was reinstated. And we can only hope that Mr. Friday has his devoted a following. Um, here was a great story. Here's my joy for the week. Feral hogs become dinner. And where else would that happen? But Louisiana. Chefs want to use this meat in sausages and stews. And they are using it in sausages and stews. It's an absolutely brilliant idea. Like, why not? Feral hogs are such a problem. The only catch is that the hogs must be delivered alive to the slaughterhouse, um, which is no mean feat. Still, it's basically free meat. And frankly, states can tr- that can transform that nuisance into a food source are way ahead of the game. Um, so more power to them. In case you didn't know this, feral hogs cost the United States $1.5 billion, with a B, dollars worth of damage across 30 states in this country. Michigan being one of them, most strongly affected Texas, all of the southern states take a beating from these feral hogs. They root up uh, fields. Uh, they, they dislodge fencing. Um, you know, they're just an incredible pest. They're very, very destructive. If you've ever seen what a, pi- a rooting pig can do, you can understand why that is major. They, they can take a tree down, like really within a couple hours. In case you have never seen that, it's it's definitely something um, to try and find a YouTube video of because it's, it's quite extraordinary. Okay, next up, the USDA. This is important, so listen up to this one. The USDA is starting a survey of antimicrobial use in feedlots. This was from Drover's Cattle Network, my one of my favorite trade papers. And the objectives for this uh, study, 2017 study, include describe the antimicrobial use practice in food and water on feedlots with a capacity of at least 50 head. Estimate the the percentage of feedlots administering and the percentage of cattle receiving specific antimicrobials in food and water by reasons for use, meaning is it prophylactic? Is it for growth promotion? Is it for disease prevention? Or is it because an animal is actually sick? Um, provide baseline data on antimicrobial use practices in place prior to the implementation of FDA policy changes. The baseline can be used for evaluating trends over time. I'm reading now. Um, Describe antimicrobial stewardship practices on U.S. feedlots. So talk about some freaking foot dragging here, folks. I mean, this is unbelievable to me that we have taken so long for the FDA to actually get busy with this. If you recall, I have been... You know, screaming about antimicrobial use in the food stream for, oh, I don't know, seven out of the eight years I've been sitting in this chair. Um, I guess we should be grateful that they're finally doing something, um, particularly given the fact that our new agricultural secretary, the aforementioned Sonny Perdue, uh, is firmly in the pocket of the industrial players. So it's not likely that he is going to push for any reform anytime soon. But the fact is, is that those guidances 
which are sort of the catalyst for this survey that is being undertaken, were signed in 2001, and they were supposed to be, I mean, it's 2011, and they were supposed to be implemented by 2013. And then it turned out that nobody actually was implementing them. So now they're taking a survey to see just how little feedlots have been following the guidances. And now they have something called the Veterinary Feed Directive, which is an actual rule, which was published in 2015. And they are supposed to implement that by the end of this year. Um, And they are required to follow the rule on what antibiotics and antimicrobials can be prescribed to animals and which drugs are shifted from over-the-counter status, which basically they all are now, and into a prescriptive use. So, I mean, this is really, it's a step forward in the right direction, but one can only you know, wring your hands in despair over how slowly this is going and how quickly uh, antibiotic resistance is evolving. I mean, these bugs don't wait for the FDA to run a survey to see whether or not people are complying with guidelines. I knew that guideline thing was never going to work out. But anyway, and finally, apropos of my last two shows with the National Young Farmers Coalition and with um, uh, Trip from Nyman Ranch, um, I saw that an acre of land sold in Iowa, South Central Iowa, the heart of farm country, for a whopping $10,900 per acre. $10,900 per acre. Talk about a barrier to entry. I'm waiting for a reply to my query on the page as to who bought it. Um, It was part of a parcel of 59.5 acres, of which 55 were arable. Um, This was on AgWeb, by the way, in case you want to follow up. You know, people cannot buy, you know, young people cannot buy land to farm for $11,000 an acre. So, you know, only a foreign uh, company can buy that or a very large American company. And there's something really wrong with what's going on there. So um, I'm, I'm going to keep uh, keep on that topic. I, I, I'm, I'm liking the young farmer talk, topic and uh, and the barriers to entry. Because, I mean, honestly, if we, if we don't get young people more involved in growing food, we're going to have some real food security issues coming down the pike. So um, stay tuned for that. And uh, for now, we'll take a short break with the sponsor drop. And we'll be right back with uh, Anirata Mittal from the Oakland Institute. We're going to be talking about land grabbing. And by the way, it happens here too. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? 
Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick. Uh, and my guest today is Anuradha Mittal, uh, Mittal, I should say, founder and executive director of the Oakland Institute. She is an internationally renowned expert on trade, development, human rights, and agriculture issues. She is the recipient of several awards and was named the most valuable thinker in 2008 by The Nation magazine. Mittal has authored and edited numerous books and reports, including Misinvestment in Agriculture, the Role of the International Finance Corporation in the Global Land Grab. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, the, uh, the Great Land Land grab, rush for worlds, farmland threatens food security for the poor, and many, many other titles, which I honestly don't have time to list here. Um, but you can go on the website for the Oakland Institute and be amazed. Um, I should say, though, however, her articles and opinion pieces have been published in widely circulated newspapers, including the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Bank Park. Bangkok Post, Houston Chronicle, and The Nation. Anurata has addressed the Congress, the United Nations, given several hundred keynote addresses, including invitational events from governments and universities, and has been interviewed on CNN, BBC World, CBC, ABC, Al Jazeera, National Public Radio, and Voice of America, and now the Heritage Radio Network. Now, do we bring you the best guests or what, people? Welcome to the show, Anurata. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Katie, for having me. Okay, so Anurata, explain to us what land grabbing actually means. I think people see that term sort of often without mm-hmm. really grasping what it what it represents. Right, Katie, since 2007, um, your listeners might have heard of the term land grabbing. Uh, it is uh, used to describe a trend which is really happening all over the developing countries where you have pension funds, uh, private equity funds, uh, so-called rich investors moving into uh, different countries in Africa or in the Asia-Pacific or in Latin America, where they take over natural resources such as land, water, natural resources that communities depend on for their livelihoods. And it is called land grabbing because in that whole process of takeover, the communities are left out. They have not been informed. They have not been consulted with. Very often, they're forcibly displaced from their own lands. And that's why this trend has come to be known as land grabs, though officially it goes by the name of investment in land for development. <laughs> development of financial portfolios. Um, exactly. <laughs> that's, it's just it's an extraordinary story. I mean, I have been following this for a while. And believe it or not, it's actually happening in the United States, too. But um, but obviously it's doesn't have quite the same impact here uh, at the moment as it obviously has in developing mm-hmm. countries. Um, so who? So you talked about uh, pension funds and, and so forth. Who were they buying the land from? Like, if they're not buying it from the actual people on the land, how, how do they make these transactions happen? Well, it really varies. I mean, we have looked at thousands and thousands of land deals uh, around the globe. So in some cases, for instance, um, you know, say in Ethiopia, these contracts are done with the government. Uh, communities, predominantly indigenous groups who have lived on this land for centuries and have customary rights to it in some way. But in Ethiopia, where land is considered as belonging to the state, it is really the state which is 
involved in this transaction. In places such as Sierra Leone, we have seen investors go directly to say the chief, uh, whose responsibility is to maintain lands for the larger common good of his community, mm-hmm. you know, bribe them with Johnny Walker whiskeys, some presents, ask them to sign a piece of paper, which they do not understand and can sign and find the lands taken away. So there are all different ways they're doing. Let me mention a very interesting case that we saw in South Sudan, where a former U.S. ambassador for refugees uh, basically managed to get one million hectares of land, and the contract was signed by uh, Mukaya Payam Cooperative, which our investigation showed that there was no agency such as this cooperative, and it was totally fictional, made up, uh, where some individuals signed the contract granting uh, a U.S. former ambassador uh, a million hectares of land for just $25,000. Oh, my God. And I was just mentioning um, in my news segment at the top of the hour that uh, farmland is selling for 11000 an acre mm-hmm. in the United States. So that just goes to show like what the level of robbery that is going on here. Mm-hmm. Now, when these people buy, when say, um, say, I remember a story that was in the Times a while ago. I actually cited it in my book where TIAA CREF, which is a big pension mm-hmm. fund, they bought land in Brazil. Um which they were sold by a guy who uh, has some very shady uh, business dealings, but had not actually somehow had managed to skate past any criminal charges. But basically what he was doing was intimidating, um, you know, indigenous folks, you know, people who owned the local land, basically scaring them enough to make them either sell it to him or just scaring them so mm-hmm. much that they left and then TIAA bought this land and this was a quite a big story in the times i don't know how it was resolved in the end but i think sometimes do you think that these financial institutions are always aware of where they're how sort of shady these deals might mm-hmm. be or is this just a case of them not doing their homework and letting somebody you know make these deals for them and oh oh whoops at the end of the day they don't really know what to do well, you know, in our experience, um, you know, the managers that we have talked to or even we found U.S. university endowments are investing in yeah. very problematic, shady land deals. And in conversations with them, when asked that, did you look at uh, the impacts on the ground? Their response was, well, we were told it's a socially responsible investment, but of course we didn't do due diligence on that. Mm -hmm. What we do due diligence on is what kind of returns we would have. Mm -hmm. So as long as the KPI, the key performance indicators for these fund managers, are determined by the kind of returns they can bring back to the investors instead of what the impact on the ground is, they don't really care. And I think it is a little bit of naivete to think that uh, Mm. they they just didn't know. I mean, these issues, as you mentioned, the story in the Times, these stories have been out there from the Guardian newspaper to, you know, predominantly all the major newspapers. So what kind of due diligence you are doing when you're going ahead, getting involved in the shady land deals, ignoring the devastation that these land deals are causing to communities on the ground, and you're focused on your, you know, yearly rate of return. Yeah, no, it's it's it, it it sort of beggars the imagination that it, at, by this time you are completely unaware of what the implications are. So, 
while we're talking about the implications, let's can you describe exactly what happens? Like, so say a company comes in um, and they are they've created an investment portfolio that includes X number of hectares of land, um, or say they want to grow soy or palm oil because a lot of these investments involve growing crops for livestock feed or for industrial use. Um, What does that mean for the people who live in that area? Well, I think before we go there, it is very important to understand that this trend, you know, foreign plantations have always existed, you know, and that's why you have the Banana Republic, so you have the Philippines. But this trend really caught fire following the high food price crisis and the financial crisis in 2007-2008. So suddenly there was this rush for land, which was seen as being even better than gold, because it kept increasing in value, and at the same time, you could make money by renting it out or growing crops on it. You mentioned what you have to pay in the United States for an acre of land. But in, when you're rushing to African lands, you're managing to get 99-year-long leases, mm. where at times you're paying 40 cents a hectare, uh, basically you would pay far more for your cup of Starbucks coffee <laughs> than you would pay for a hectare of land in Africa. Wow. So all these factors have fueled this rush for land grabs in places such as Africa. And uh, you mentioned that it is being done for growing palm oil. That's true for soya. But there are many uses we have seen. We have seen it for export crops, baby vegetables being exported to Swaziland, or uh, growing genetically modified corn for your ethanol or for biofuels or palm oil. But we have also seen people take over land for speculative purposes. Uh, We exposed emergent asset management where the CEO was running around in investment conferences declaring to, you know, investors that we can be moronic and not grow food and we will make money. Now, the way these morons were planning to make money was by flipping the land and selling it for a higher amount, as the case that you mentioned of Tia in Brazil. Uh, I'm sure the guy who managed to get the land from these um, people on the ground did not pay them as much compared to the money he made by selling that land to Tia. Undoubtedly. What is the experience of the communities on the ground? Well, again, it varies. Let me share with you what is going on in Ethiopia as we speak. So one of the key fundamental pillars of so-called development for the Ethiopian government is to lease nearly 11 million hectares of land to foreign investors. They believe that these uh, you know, big, large-scale agriculture will modernize Ethiopia, making it the lion of Africa. It will result in improved food security, built up of infrastructure and country joining the likes of, you know, middle-income countries such as Brazil or Malaysia. The way it is happening is that people are being forcibly displaced from their lands. These are indigenous communities. If they resist, they are intimidated. They have been arrested. They have been tortured. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just last year, according to government figures, nearly 20,000 people were arrested around the land grabs in the Oromo land. We have done research in Gambela, in the lower Omo, where in the name of providing better social services, people are being herded. These are agro-pastoralists who are being herded into small spaces, and it is called the villagization scheme. And once these lands are taken away from them, their ancestral lands, they're being given away to foreign companies to grow whatever crops they want. And in most cases, we have seen land you know, defenders, indigenous leaders, have now been charged as terrorists and are behind bars. 
So it is that level of intimidation that is happening in Ethiopia. I can give you the example from Papua New Guinea, where the landowners, when they have challenged the logging companies, the palm oil companies, they have been locked up and um, and left there for a week without food, without any kind of access to recourse or to uh, legal uh, support. In case of Sierra Leone, the local NGOs that are challenging uh, French-based uh, companies, Softwell and Belgian French company, uh, they have been accused of denying development to the country. They are no longer allowed to access the villages, and the communities have been basically left desolate with no access to support from civil society. Um, you know, in Cameroon, our colleague Nasako was faced with charges from the government because he was supporting the villagers who were challenging. Uh, Heracles Farms, uh, which was initially a New York-based company, which wanted to cut down the world's second-largest rainforest and replant it to the palm oil plantation. And instead of supporting and seeing the patriotism of this activist, he was charged and had to pay fines for stopping development and for inciting violence uh, among the community members. Incredible. And isn't it also true that a lot of times when these deals are cut, like with a government, as opposed to just kind of some sort of middleman like the case in Brazil. Isn't it true that they will promise a government, oh, yes, we're going to build roads. Oh, yes, we're going to build infrastructure. That's part of our deal. And then that part of the deal never somehow transpires. Is that an accurate assessment of what often happens? Well, you know, it's very true. Very often people think it is just the corruption of the African governments. These elites are corrupt and they're selling away the lands of their people. We have to really question the development model that is being promoted by the aid agencies right mm-hmm. here in, you know, your, your USAID to UK DFID, um, as well as institutions such as the World Bank. So the mantra of development that has been sold to the developing countries is that make yourself, you know, very attractive to foreign investors, get rid of all these regulations which require formal, you know, uh, consent from the landowners to have due process uh, to determine agricultural policies that will really benefit the smallholder farmers in your country. So the whole mantra is one of farmers will be successful who can participate in the export economy, i.e. it means large-scale plantations, never mind the devastating impact on the climate, uh, on our rivers, on the groundwater, and of course get rid of the smallholder farmers and bring in the foreign investors. So, yes, the governments have been tempted. Uh, We exposed a case where Iowa-based AgriSol promised the Tanzanian Prime Minister all of these things. We will turn Tanzania into uh, Iowa. You know, they brought a team of people (laughs) from Tanzania. They rode the big GPS-led, you know, tractors. They saw these, you know, as far as the eye could see, these cornfields. And they think that's what development looks like. So they were willing to make the largest land deal, 800,000 acres of land, which would have displaced over 160,000 smallholder farmers. Incredible. Anurata, people have no idea, including myself, what is going on there. I mean, where's the book? Have you written your book yet about this? You have. You've written two books about it, haven't you? Um, Well, actually, the Institute has produced so many reports and continues to document what is happening on the ground. As you said, very often discussions and debates around agricultural policies are happening in Washington, D.C. For instance, Mm -hmm. the recently organized Land and Poverty Conference by the World Bank. 
It's a joke. Yeah. What really needs to happen is to elevate the voices of the communities who are waking up to find bulldozers outside their homes or ripping up their fields. And that is what the Oakland Institute is doing, providing legal support to those who have been criminalized and arrested, documenting with rigor what is happening on the ground to be able to influence policymakers, both nationally as well as internationally. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic work. Let me ask you this. Um, <clears throat> When you when a company comes in and and bulldozes a forest or just takes over, as you said, 160,000 people's worth of farmland and they grow row crops, doesn't that create tremendous hunger issues in that area? (laughs) Can we talk a little bit about the food insecurity? But again, let me point out the case of Ethiopia, where the government has been boasting and so have the international aid institutions about the double digit growth in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And last year, there was, uh, you know, this crisis around famine, and it was asking and requesting for food aid. Now, that famine was linked to basically climate crisis. Our research shows that Ethiopia has been dependent anywhere from 10 to 16 million people have been depending on food aid for the last decade. So you imagine the scenario where you have trucks coming in with food aid, whereas trucks full of produce that has been grown in some of the most fertile lands of Ethiopia leaving the country. This is a country which has chosen to destroy uh, the way of life of the agro-pastoralists, the Bodhis, the Mursis, the Suris, the Kiras in Lower Omo, a site which is recognized as a World Heritage Site by UNESCO, to basically destroy all of that so you can have sugarcane and you can have cotton plantations, which will not feed the people. Uh, Just also let me point out the promises of infrastructure development. I mentioned the Agrisol land deal in Tanzania, which would have displaced nearly 160,000 smallholder farmers and their families. In that case, AgriSol was asking that the government of Tanzania take a World Bank loan to put in a railway line from their farm to the port because they wanted Tanzania to change its laws so it could start growing genetically modified corn, which was going to be exported to be converted into ethanol for the U.S. and European markets. Right, right. This is a community which was growing food, which was feeding not just the villages and the neighboring communities. They're a big producer of food. So you have this idea of development which would make countries like Tanzania dependent on food aid, which will make them dependent on importing their basic food necessities while using their land to grow commodities so some people in Iowa or elsewhere can get rich. Yes. God, it's so ugly. I can hardly even wrap my head around this. What? Let, let me ask you this. Don't, I mean, are you the only line, you know, the only line of defense for, for these people? I mean, it, it seems to me that the civil unrest inherent in destabilizing a food system, for example, uh, would maybe outweigh the lure of foreign capital. Mm-hmm. Why, you know, like, why, why haven't these um, companies countries that are cutting these deals recognizing that they're they're not only imposing a famine on their population but there's also a lot of civil unrest inherent in that mm-hmm. and and why hasn't that been more of an issue for them i'm just curious why you know money talks well, more than yeah. than riots 
Well, Katie, I think the point you're making makes total sense, and you have to be sensible uh, to actually understand this. In 2008, we saw uh, nearly 30 countries facing political riots and possibility of political upheaval, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization, when the food prices went up. But the problem is a lot of these investors are looking for very high returns, and they understand that comes with risk. Mm. So if you look at the case of Karaturi, this company from India, which went into Ethiopia, uh, taking over 300,000 hectares of land, which were then reduced by the government to 100,000 hectares of land, and eventually they were kicked out of the country. Mm. However, the impact, the devastation that they had caused in Gambela still remains. The people's lands were still taken away. And, of course, it is causing a lot of dissent. You know, the kind of resistance that we're seeing on the ground, from Ethiopia to Papua New Guinea, we are told over and over again that this land is not just property for these communities. It is sacred for them. This is where they were born. This is where their ancestors were born. And this is where they're buried. So they will fight till the very end. And uh, and it does blow up. I mean, in Ethiopia last year, Financial Times called the protests that were taking place around land as Ethiopia's Tiananmen Square moment. Oh, wow. This was Financial Times calling it that. So definitely there's unrest. Uh, investors, if they're wise and want solid, stable returns, would not get into these land deals, would not get involved in uh, in deals which offer them returns at a very high cost, which is destruction of livelihoods and lives of the local communities. Um, and we're beginning to see that trend more and more. You have a country like Cambodia, where uh, land grabs in the name of development have landed the government of Cambodia in the International Criminal Court. Now, that is the first time the International Criminal Court is looking at uh, mass devastation caused by land grabs by a government, an agency which has usually looked at crimes against humanity caused during wars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that was going to be my next question is like, who, what body has any say over this, you know, this kind of um, shady dealing? Like, you know, it's the international court, it's the UN, it's, I mean, who, these, these are issues that are going to start popping up at The Hague, for example. I mean, is that mm-hmm. where you think this is going to go? Well, you know, these kind of issues are already in international agencies. I just mentioned the International Criminal Court. You have several cases that relate to uh, land rights of the indigenous communities uh, in Kenya and Tanzania with the African Commission for People and Human Rights. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, there's also efforts in, uh, you know, in uh, Washington, D.C. and Geneva around these voluntary guidelines for how corporations should behave. Yeah. But they're all voluntary guidelines. Right. I mean, there's nothing mandatory. So we believe at the Institute that the real power lies with the people. And decisions have to be made by stakeholders. For instance, the agro-pastoralists, the fisher folk, it has to be made by the smallholder farmers who are uh, the stewards of the land. They Mm -hmm. have ancestral customary rights to these lands. So these discussions cannot happen by the World Bank, which would like to see privatization of land, land titles, so it becomes easier for companies and individuals to go in and offer something little and take away the land and resources of these communities. Mm -hmm. We 
also need really enabling governments, which represent the best interest of their own communities, rather than the diktats of the World Bank, which is forcing Western seed corporations, Western chemical corporations on African nations. Mm -hmm. You know, to go back to the World Bank for a second, you know, these aid organizations seem to have an agenda that is far different from what we, uh, you know, as sort of bystanders or spectators um, think that they're doing. I mean, I, you know, I think everybody thinks the World Bank is a very benign in- institution. I've had <laughs> friends who've worked there and loved it and felt like they were doing great work there. And yet what they're doing is pushing an agenda that is anything but what is best for mm-hmm. the people. And I'm wondering, do, for example, when you're talking about an international court uh, trying cases, do do these aid organizations ever, uh, are they ever brought up on uh, any kind of charges or do they have any sense of the damage that they're doing? Like, why are they so intent on pushing this agenda when the proof is clearly in the pudding? I mean, after 30, 40 years of, of trying to push American agricultural models on places mm-hmm. in developing countries, I, I think it's it's pretty clear it doesn't really work that well. So mm-hmm. wh- what is their agenda in all of this? Who's, who is well, driving this? You know, you mentioned, Katie, you have friends of the World Bank who have worked and are very happy. Of course, if I work, then I don't even have to pay taxes. That would be very pleased with myself. <laughs> well, that uh, wasn't the reason. I mean, they the felt they were doing is, good uh, stuff. Uh, you know, I can tell you just very recently, uh, we initiated an action where over 150 different organizations from around the world wrote to the World Bank mm-hmm. and its uh, funders asking that it ends. It's a very, very harming program called EBA, which is Enabling the Business of Agriculture. This is a project which is financed and was created at the request of uh, the USAID, uh, the UK aid agency, and by the Dutch and the Danish governments, along with the Gates Foundation. Uh Now, what this project is doing is basically doing a report card on countries on what they're like to do business with in agriculture. So the criteria is not one of a government which says that we are going to first protect the rights of the smallholder farmers to the land, to the seeds and water. No. If a country says, you know what, we're going to make you accessing land really easy, it'll be less than a week's time, and you, all the land registration work would be done. There would be no need for consultations with the local community that might be impacted. Mm-hmm. You get a good rating. Then the neighboring country says, hey, I'm willing to do that, but guess what? I'm even willing to do away with my environmental standards. Then you get even a better ranking. Right. So basically, It is a very slippery road, which has created a rush to get a good ranking, which then gets covered in media, and that depends your credit rating. It depends, uh, you know, impacts what kind of credit and investments you can generate. Right, and also how much aid you get, right? And we are very clear that the bank has to end its EBA program and the scorecard and a report card of the countries, which none of the communities authorize it to do in the first place. So definitely it is the agenda of the Western governments, which are then seeking to open up markets for their Western corporations. This is not a conspiracy theory. The facts are there. Our reports are there. And we have been challenging them. And despite that, they seem to be puppets or in the pockets of the Western corporations. I'm afraid that is all too true. And sadly, I think we are going to have to wrap it up here because I could go on and on about this, but maybe you'll come back and we'll dissect this a bit more. Um, but can, in the meantime, can you explain to listeners how they can learn more about land grabbing? Uh, 
in the, you know, in the developing nations and more about the Oakland Institute so that they can become informed about this as we are trying to educate our population about keeping our corporate overlords out of everybody else's business. Sure. Well, I would urge your listeners to visit our website, which is www.oaklandinstitute.org. Mm-hmm. It is one word. But uh, I'll also encourage them to join us on Twitter and Facebook, where you can see breaking news as they happen. And if you have questions, feel free to reach out to us. Absolutely. Anurada, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you to my sponsor, the Museum of Food and Drink. Bravo. And um, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, people. And do visit the Oakland Institute. This is a major issue we need to be paying attention to. Because by the way, it's not just developing countries. Like I said, it's happening in America, too. Stay tuned for more. Bye bye now. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.